Part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage is called the tradition of the free pulpit and the free pew, or the free red chair, you know, what have you. The freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach about anything that I think will be significant and meaningful for us to consider. And the freedom of the pew means that just because I say it, you don't have to believe it, which isn't a particular worry at most UU congregations, but it is explicitly articulated. That being said, as Scott mentioned earlier, once a year, members and friends of this congregation contribute all sorts of items to our annual auction, from special opportunities to dinner to trips are all auctioned off, as well as actual tangible items. And as part of each year's auction, part of what I contribute is the opportunity to, for me to preach a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice, whatever topic you're passionate about or think might be particularly challenging or meaningful or provocative. A chance for the freedom of the pew to influence the freedom of the pulpit. So if there's a sermon you've been hoping to hear about, the upcoming auction on November 11th is your chance, though keep in mind, you get to, you get to pick the topic, not the angle I take on that topic. Last year, uh, Jim Langley and Leslie Powell were the highest bidders on the auction sermon, and they chose the topic of how do we maintain our UU principles when we can't agree on the facts? More specifically, they emailed me that in our current um, polarized political climate in general, and with the provocative rhetoric emerging from the White House in particular, that all seems to be precipitating a further degradation of our political discourse, pulling otherwise high-minded people into the vortex. The, and the more good people descend into that ugliness, the more we risk ugliness itself winning. And so they write that they're interested in how our UU principle, first principle in particular, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, how do we preserve that, especially when we sometimes struggle to see the good in people who seem to be defending even the most heinous words and deeds? How do we maintain our political principles, our UU principles? How do we maintain even a basic decency as we find ourselves sometimes maybe wanting to snarl at somebody uh, that is espousing ideas that are just antithetical to our own? How do we hold our ground and avoid going low in a world where we can't even seem to agree on the facts that might be used to create laws and inform public policy? So offering a sermon topic to the highest bidder is always a risk, but so far I've found each year's topic to be a welcome opportunity to explore a subject I might not have otherwise covered. So thank you, uh, Jim and Leslie, for this opportunity to reflect on a topic that is both timely and challenging. So, and if this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, Oxford University Press has published two really excellent and accessible books related to this topic in the last two years. They, I think, agree with Jim and Leslie that people are talking about this. The first is titled Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us. It was published in 2016, and just this year they published The Death of Expertise, the Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. I would recommend both those books to you. But as I've reflected on this topic, there's actually a third book that's come to mind even more than those two. It's by Tad DeLay, um, and it's called The Cynic and the Fool. T Tad's a scholar who writes at the intersection of psychoanalysis, philosophy, and theology. 
And his work is an important reminder that if we can't agree on the facts, then when we find ourselves unable to agree on the facts, how we proceed will sometimes depend on what's really going on underneath our inability to agree on the facts. To use delays categories are the facts in dispute because we are engaged with a misinformed but honest fool? Or are we dealing with a nihilistic cynic who actually doesn't care about the truth, who actually doesn't care about facts, but only, are say, but only about saying or doing whatever it takes to spin doctor perception and to amass power at any cost? I suspect we've all watched enough political interviews to at least have thought to ourselves periodically about some given politician Is that person so foolish as to actually believe what they just said? Or are they just cynically towing a party line that they know good and well is a load of BS, right? That they know is false. Along these lines, the late conservative political commentator William F. Buckley was famous for saying, No, I'm not going to insult your intelligence by treating you as if you were as stupid as you're pretending to be. And I wish we lived in a world in which everyone was always acting above board. Unfortunately, to protect ourselves, we really need to pause sometimes and consider, is this person who's disagreeing with me about the facts, are they acting in good faith? Are they acting with honesty and with sincerity of intention? Or are they acting in bad faith with an intent to deceive and manipulate myself or others? And we know that there have been a lot of bad faith actors over time because we have a lot of words to describe this phenomenon. Con man, demagogue, snake oil salesman, huckster, charlatan, cheat, fraud, sham, swindler. I could go on. So when I find myself encountering Orwellian doublespeak about so-called alternative facts, I remind myself occasionally of that um, famous and helpful quote from the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick that reality, reality is what doesn't go away just because you stop believing in it. Because there's no such thing as an alternative fact. A fact is something that is indisputably the case. And eventually there will be consequences for one or more parties involved in a dispute about facts as reality catches up with propaganda, either in the short or long term. But in the meantime, arguing with someone operating in bad faith can be exhausting at best and deeply harmful at worst. I'm also reminded of the line that I find most haunting from George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. He wrote, that in that dystopic reality, the heresy of heresies was common sense. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final and most essential command. Anytime the powers that be begin to convince significant numbers of people to disbelieve facts, to disbelieve what their eyes and ears show them is evidently and clearly the case, we are in treacherous times. And whenever people in power are promoting so-called alternative facts, I don't know that there's much to be accomplished by arguing with bad faith actors. The best thing to do is to leverage power as quickly as you can to replace them with leaders more likely to act in good faith according to actual facts. Of course, history has also shown us that promises made on the campaign trail, they don't always get fulfilled in office. 
But I don't want to spend our whole time on the depressing number of bad faith actors in our society. What about the other side of DeLay's formulation? People who are not cynical nihilists, but who are misinformed but honest fools. And he he means that in the classic uh, philosophical sense of people acting gullibly and um, with credulity in the face of people who are manipulating them as bad faith actors. Well, David Dunning and Justin Kruger are two research scientists at Cornell University who are known for researching precisely this question, and their most famous finding they very humbly named after themselves. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It shows that, and they've seen this over and over again in social scientific studies, that the less people know about something, the more confident they are that they do know something. To quote Dunning and Kruger, uninformed people not only reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence um, robs them of the ability to realize what's really going on. Of course, experts get it wrong sometimes too, but if experts are good faith actors, then they've also spent a lot of time studying the common errors and the pitfalls in their field, helping them at least uh, be experts, right? Here's a related corollary to the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's called the above-average effect. And this, again, has been showed in multiple social scientific studies that in almost every area, everyone thinks that they're, well, above average. Unfortunately, 50% are wrong. And that 50% shifts depending on the category under consideration. So this sort of invites us to become aware about where are those areas where we're actually below average but think we're above average. There's other areas where you're probably right that you're above average. Uh, But if you think you're above average in every area, they would invite you to reflect. The truth is that most of us don't like to be wrong and we love to be right. And there's good reason why. It turns out that as we've learned more about neuroscience, that we've seen that our brains actually get a dopamine rush when we find confirming data. Not right data, confirming data. Uh, similar to what the, the same dopamine rush that we get uh, if we eat chocolate, if we have sex, if we fall in love. That's what happens when you're right. Or when you get confirming data, I should say. When you think you're right. (laughs) So evolution has given us this really strong incentive to maintain our current views because it feels more pleasurable to do so, irrespective of whether we're right or wrong. Psychologists call a related effect confirmation bias. The tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs and hypotheses. In addition to the strong incentives that evolution has given us to maintain our current beliefs, brain scans have shown that our amygdala, our fight-or-flight part of our brain, that our amygdala is triggered whenever we encounter um, facts that we disagree with or points that we disagree with, right or wrong. Just anything that we don't currently agree with triggers our amygdala. When we hear a disagreeable idea, if you take someone who's hearing a disagreeable idea and put them in a, a brain scan, the same part of their brain lights up as if they were being threatened with a knife. So your amygdala gets triggered and your prefrontal cortex, which is like your rational part of your brain, which you can access when you're calm, that goes dark and your amygdala lights up. Same with a knife as with a disagreeable idea. These factors all contribute to the all-too-human tendency to persist in believing delusions instead of painfully facing facts. So having named some of what we're up against, if you want to increase your odds of changing someone's mind, here's a few strategies. The first is to make sure everyone involved, including yourself, is relaxed, 
and well-rested. If one or more people is hungry, angry, stressed, tired, etc., there's a very low likelihood of anyone's mind being changed. Some of you may know the acronym HALT, like STOP, so H-A-L-T. That stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you're feeling any of those things, HALT, go fix them before you return to engaging with civilization, right? Because you'll sometimes have what's called being hangry, for example, hungry, angry. You know, go eat something, you'll be less hangry. So second, ask the person if they would be willing to try uh, the following experiment with you. This can actually be really revelatory if people are willing to do it, again, in good faith. Both of you go to a quiet place where you're relatively free from stress, free from distraction, when you aren't particularly rushed, and write down what you know about the arguments on the other side, the argument for the position with which you disagree. Also write down what would it take for you to change your mind. This practice can potentially expose one or two things about each or more of the involved parties. One, you may discover that there is nothing that could change either or both of your minds, in which case you might want to consider stopping talking about the subject at hand. This is what divorce lawyers call irreconcilable differences, right? So sometimes you have incommensurable positions. So if it's an option to just... Agree to disagree, that may be, which it isn't always, that may be the time to do that. If you discover through doing this exercise, there's nothing you can do to change the person's mind. Good to know that, right? Good information to have. The second thing you might discover is an ability to identify the data that actually would change the person's mind. If they're acting in good, good faith, you can then go look for that data and see if it exists or not. A more advanced technique is called motivational interviewing. There's a lot of fascinating examples we could explore in which of what to do when people disagree on the facts. Um, we could consider debates over the raw milk movement. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, Google it. It's a raging debate. Uh, we could look at climate change. We could look at the debate over genetically modified foods. We could look at the debate around um, preventing gun violence, to name just a few examples of amygdala-triggering things in our society. But I'd like to invite us to spend just a few minutes reflecting on the debate. So to use our case study for this morning, I, I want to invite us to reflect on the debate around vaccines. Even that word, I suspect, is triggering the amygdala of, of some people in this room. Uh, I should perhaps subtitle this section, Ways to Make People Incredibly Angry at Me. So just take it for a test drive, okay, this morning. Uh, I'll admit that what it would take for me to change my mind about this debate would be for the scientific consensus to shift. That seems incredibly unlikely. The facts, as I understand them, is that the vaccine question was up for debate in 1998 when Andrew Wakefield first published his paper. Seventeen years later and numerous robust studies finding absolutely no association whatsoever between vaccines and autism, this is not a legitimate debate among respectable and well-informed medical scientists and uh, experts. Moreover, it was discovered in 2010 that Wakefield had been accepting money from a defense lawyer to publish certain findings. His paper was retracted. Wakefield eventually lost his medical license, the person who started this whole debate. In addition to obvious conflicts of interest, um, the paper was scientifically unsound uh, with only 12 non-randomly selected subjects and no comparison group. All of that being said, here's an example of what it might look like to do motivational interviewing around this hotly contested subject still in our, um, or hotly debated at least, it's not actually contested, but 
uh, techniques around this debate with someone who disagrees with you about the facts. And if this is, you know, you can substitute in other things for this. So if a parent tells you that they think vaccines are dangerous and they're not thinking of not getting their child vaccinated, the best first thing to say to them is not, that's not true and there's no evidence that vaccines are dangerous. That's going to cause the amygdala to get triggered and for everyone to re-entrench. Rather, try gently prodding the person into exploring their feelings further by saying, to start with just tell me more. Just tell me a little more about your story, how you came to believe that. Uh, try inviting them to say, tell me how you came to feel nervous about vaccines. You can then potentially start to guide the person down a slowed down, articulated version of how did they come to the conclusion that vaccines, which have done so much good in our society, might be dangerous. And along the way, and this is what motivational interviewing is all about, it's about getting underneath that, what's really going on here? And it turns out that for most people, what you'll discover that what's really going on is not a fear of vaccines, it's an underlying motivation to keep their children safe and healthy. That's what's really going on. Right. And that so when you expose that, that's the real turning point of motivational interviewing. And that's something you can try to work with. After prioritizing listening, listening over listing facts, you can eventually ask questions that maybe highlight some of the angles that may not have been considered. For instance, the number of people who have been vaccinated and later diagnosed with autism should not be considered in isolation. If you've, any of you have taken statistics classes, there's little like simple two by two boxes where you don't just look at one quadrant. You have to look at all the probabilities, all of the angles. So you also need to consider um, the number of children who are not vaccinated who get autism. You need to consider the number of children who are vaccinated and who don't get autism. I also want to make sure that I directly address the struggle to maintain our UU principles, especially the first principle of the inherent worth and dignity of every person, even when we can't agree on the facts. One of the most helpful books I have found recently on this topic is called Cultivating Empathy, the worth and dignity of every person without exception. It's by my colleague, the Reverend Nathan Walker. Nate has written, I once believed it was powerful to condemn wrongdoers. I believed it was right to tear down another person's unexamined assumptions and to vaporize those whose presence I deemed not worthy of my attention. I believed that others were the cause of my aggression. Others were to blame for my feelings of despair and disappointment and righteous indignation. He says, I've come to see that I was doing justice while being a jerk. For Nate, one of the most powerful tools for cultivating empathy is what is sometimes called the moral imagination. The ability to anticipate or project ourselves into and see this conflict from the perspective of all the people involved. To come to understand Agree or disagree? How did you come to have this? What's your story? What all went into you thinking why you think what you do? Nates writes that I've come to see that it is possible for me to understand another person's point of view and how they came to hold it without necessarily agreeing with them and without necessarily al allowing my voice to be silenced. Understanding is a prerequisite for empathy. And when we observe oppression, let us try to develop strategies that free not only the oppressed, but the oppressor. Do not let their unjust actions inspire us to cruelty, or else we will soon risk becoming that which we set out to oppose. 
So all this is like a lot easier to say than do, right? When you actually find yourself across from someone. Uh, but in that spirit of maintaining our UU principles, I chose this next hymn with intention. So I invite you to really notice the lyrics that we're about to sing. I invite you to turn in your hymnal to hymn 1012, When I Am Frightened. And as, we, as you rise in body or spirit, as we prepare to sing this together, really notice how might this be inviting you to show up in a different way around people that you know about or are going to encounter in the coming days and weeks with whom you disagree about the facts. Let's rise and body your spirit. There's a lot more to say about how do you maintain your UU principles even when we disagree on the facts. So I invite you, if there's some techniques that you've found that have worked for you, there'll be a, a, uh, some time to share that in just uh, a few moments. The other, one other thing I'd add is that science is kind of a tricky thing sometimes when we're trying to argue with people with scientific facts. Science isn't always as like definitive as we'd like it to be, right? There's that old joke, if I can remember off the top of my head, about the what, what a true scientific wedding vow would be. It wouldn't be, you know, I promise to love you forever. It would be something like, I currently know of no evidence that would lead us to get divorced. You know, like, so it's like not as, not as definitive as we like sometimes, because that's what it's based on, the evidence that we have, and it works best on things that are falsifiable that you can literally, you know, show that it can't be disproven. So that, that's a frustrating thing, but something that can be helped, um, if, as, as we continue to advocate for more and better scientific education about what science is and isn't, as we start to advocate for, you know, logic classes so that people learn basic forms of rhetoric and argumentation. That's an ad hominem. That's a non sequitur that can help people to engage and realize when someone's trying to manipulate them in very classic ways. One thing that can help with strangers is to get to know them as friends, right? So instead of that's that motivational interviewing technique, instead of leading with the facts, hear all the things you don't know, start with, tell me some of your story. Let me learn about you and that that can serve as the basis. So I need to move into the benediction because we have one more example for you in the postlude of what can come when you do the hard work of coming to agree with the facts, uh, come to, you know, do the hard work of interpreting the facts and coming to agreement uh, with our musical example. So, but I see the hands, so let's continue this conversation. And the struggle is that as you continue your journeys, you run into inevitably to people that disagree with your facts, with the facts, is to strive to continue your journey in love, even when that's the case. How do you continue your journey in love to work for justice and peace? And whatever taste or touch you've had of how that might become possible, whatever hope or love or peace or joy that you've got a glimpse of in this time and place, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.